0: Hi everyone, what if you were wired by God so that your years on earth would count? Like what, what if you're not just a random collection of cells that are the byproduct of billions of chance accidents along the way, but but, but you're actually handcrafted like a masterpiece from, from a, a loving God who placed you on this earth on purpose? Well, that's what we're talking about for the next two weeks. So, so did you know that, for you and I, 50% of our DNA is the same as a banana? <laughs> and 96% of our DNA, our life code, is the same as that of a chimpanzee. Well, so what about two humans? Pick any two humans and the difference in our identity is actually less than 1%. That's my friend Rung from Thailand. Less than 1% difference between you and me and every other human who has ever lived. And yet each of us is totally and completely unique. You see, embedded in that less than 1% is jaw-dropping potential for different personalities, different relationships, and bountiful dreams. And combined with the the differences in each of our surroundings, and upbringings, and life experiences, and the the, the unique world-changing potential of that less than 1% in you, well, it changes everything. You've been uniquely wired by God. And that's how you were created. But, but just add on to that for a second. For those of you who are Christians, the day you were saved, I, I mean, that's incredible. The, the moment that you met Jesus Christ, something came alive in you. An imagination that had been lost came to life. Dreams that had faded started to shine again. Purpose in life that, that was just a grainy black and white picture turned into crystal clear color. And into your very unique, less than 1% life, God breathed his spirit into you and identities and roles that you never knew you had before began to take shape. Ephesians 2.10 says it this way. says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So now, even though every believer has a special calling from God, the vast majority of people never discover it, never put words to it, and so they miss an opportunity to step into God's flow during this lifetime. And over the next two Sundays, I want to talk about two very specific callings that have been given to every single Christian. For some of you, you know, who you, maybe you've just felt a little off lately, I pray that these messages will give you some clarity as to why you're on the planet. Okay, so let's start. When I say the word priest, what do you think of? Now, in a Catholic town like Erie, maybe you think of a guy in a black shirt and a robe or a white collar. Maybe maybe you're an Old Testament junkie, and for you, the idea of priest takes you back to the Pentateuch, and you think of the temple and the tabernacle and the altars and offerings and the sacrificial lambs. And if an ancient Israelite priest were to take the stage today... Like, it would be a shocking sight. The linen tunic, the colorful ephod, that, which is the outer robes, the breastplate containing 12 precious stones, the, the turban with the gold plate on the forehead, the Urim and Thummim uh, stones that would determine God's will. Like, it would be an intimidating and impressive display of ritualistic attire. But then you get to the New Testament, and there's a different take on this idea of a priest. And I'd like to spend today trying to figure out who are the real priests in our time. And spoiler alert, by the end of the message, I hope that you're ready to put on your robe. And in fact, I'm going to arrange my message today to give away the ending at the beginning and then take a journey with you through, through the Bible to get us back there. And so here's today's text from 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says to the Christians that he's writing to and to us, he says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Did you catch that? He says you are a chosen race. You are, catch this, a royal priesthood. And that's today's big idea, that every Christian is a royal priest. Now, if you're following along in your Bible today, it's going to be a little like sword drills. You're going to have to keep up. It's a little easier if you're on the version app because you can just use the search feature. But we're going to start today in Exodus 29. In Exodus 29, it's after the Israelites had escaped from slavery in Egypt. And they're on their way through the wilderness. And God tells Moses that that he wants the people to build him a house, and he calls it a tabernacle, and God is gonna live in it. And much of the second half of the book of Exodus is actually a blueprint of the instructions for this tabernacle. It was kind of like a mobile temple to show the people that God's presence was with them. And the main dynamic that starts taking shape is that certain things, certain objects, certain places, certain people, are to be set aside as sacred, as holy. Remember, this was mostly a non-literary society. There weren't written instructions for things. And so God would communicate truths through object lessons. Complex ideas were broken down into real-life illustrations. And so here God is communicating that some things are sacred and holy and set apart from the ordinary. Like spaces at the tabernacle, there would be an outer courtyard a place where ordinary people could gather, but then there was an inside part called the holy place, and then the very center where the Ark of the Covenant was gonna be kept, it was called the Holy of Holies, the most holy place. If you read through the latter part of Exodus, there's great care given to describing every detail and every dimension of this space. Why? Because God wanted them to see that this was different. It was holy. It was set apart, uh, that God could only be approached in a certain specific way. And very importantly, there was a curtain that would separate the holy place from everything else. A modern example of this separation is in an airplane. Do you ever notice that on a plane, sometimes they use uh, uh, this thing to separate the coach people from the first class people? They use a curtain. And if you're in coach, you're not allowed to go on the other side of that precious curtain because people in coach are common. They're ordinary. They're, they're dirty. First class is the holy of holies. They have the sacred wide seats. They have the sacred linens, the sacred meals and drinks. And, and if, you, if you, you can't get that stuff if you're in coach. Like, have you ever gotten the evil eye from a flight attendant if you stand too close to the sacred curtain, right? The announcement comes on, we don't want any commoners using the bathrooms in the holy of holies. And and she's like, that means you sucker, get back to your dirty little seat in your common area right? And those in first class, they're cleansed, you know, with warm, moist towelettes. In coach, you just sit in a big, nasty pool of your own sweat. First class gets to board first. They get to sit down first. They get to situate their luggage first. They get their drinks first. They start reading their book first. And and the evil part of me thinks, yeah, and when we fly into a mountain, they're also going to die first. (laughs) It's going to take a while for me to die way back in the back row by the stinky toilets, all right, I might be a little bitter about this. And no, it's not a perfect analogy, but you get my point. The curtain separates it. And in the tabernacle, there's this space and it's divided by a curtain so that the common can't go in there and the holy can't come out of there. And this is also true of the altar. I want you to see this in Exodus 29:37. He says, "Seven days you shall make atonement for the altar and consecrate it and the altar shall be most holy." and whatever touches the altar shall become holy. And so holiness and uncleanness are kind of like a physical contagion in that sense. They spread by touch, and so the tabernacle and the altar are holy and they must be kept clean. Nothing that's unclean can touch the altar because it will defile it or make it unclean. This designation is also true of certain people. Moses is told this in Exodus chapter 30. He says, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may serve me as priests. So what's God saying? He's saying that I'm setting aside, I'm consecrating a certain group of people, priests, who are gonna be the holy ones. And these priests are gonna have to wear sacred garments to delineate them as holy, as set apart. They have to do extensive washings and cleanliness rituals anytime they approach me or are in my presence. And so God is saying, I want everyone to know when they see these priests that they are set apart for my service. And so you have places, and you have altars, and you have people. You even have clothes that are considered holy, set apart. Then in Leviticus 10:10, 10. 10, we find out the purpose of this whole system. God says, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. Again, we have here this object lesson to to remind people that God is holy, that He's set apart, and that people's sin has separated them from his presence. And so a holy mediator is needed to reconcile God and his people. And the divider of all of this stuff was a curtain. On one side was the holy and sacred. On the other side was the ordinary. And the only people who could traffic between the two sides were the priests, the holy ones. Now, this system continued. And when the Israelites finally settled in the Holy Land and the tabernacle became the temple in Jerusalem, a much more permanent structure, but there was still kind of a similar breakdown between the holy places and the courtyards where the commoners could come. And there was still a curtain there to divide the holy and the ordinary. And it was a huge curtain. It was nearly 60 feet high. It had fabric that was four inches thick. In fact, if you hold up your hand like this, about the width of your hand, that's that's how thick the curtain was. And so this was the system, sacred temples, sacred priests, and a clear divide with a curtain between the holy and the ordinary. But then something happened. Then this guy named Jesus bursts onto the scene. And he begins to redefine and reclarify the old system. And suddenly, the clear dividing line between the holy and the ordinary starts to become blurry. John 1 describes Jesus' arrival like this. It says, the word became flesh and dwelt. It's actually the word tabernacled among us. And John is using loaded language here. He's saying there's a new system. The old system all along was just a foreshadowing. It was just pointing to what has now become a reality in Jesus. Now God is no longer confined to a little room with an altar behind a curtain. Now God lives among us. The holy has become ordinary. And if you read through the Gospels, you see that Jesus was constantly getting in trouble by the religious leaders for breaking all the holy and unholy boundaries, all the clean and unclean rules. He was eating with sinners. He's hanging out with tax collectors. He's letting prostitutes touch his feet. He's touching lepers. Jesus didn't think that having contact with broken people was gonna make him unclean like a contagion. In fact, just the opposite. He now had the power to make the unclean clean. And his teachings start to challenge this old system. And he begins saying things like this in Matthew 12, 6. He says, I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. What does that mean? Well, Remember, the temple, it was a picture of God's presence on earth. It's where God lived. It's where he stayed among his people. And now Jesus is here. And suddenly the holiest place isn't a building. It's wherever Jesus is. God's presence is wherever Jesus is. Ordinary people are now becoming cleansed and holy because they are meeting Jesus. And remember, everyone's favorite Jesus moment when he goes into the temple and he starts flipping over tables. But it was a very important moment, not just because of what he did, but because of the dialogue that takes place. In John 2, 18 to 21, it says this. It says, the Jewish leaders had asked him, like, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews are confused. They then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days, verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. What's he doing? He's redefining what the temple is. He's saying, I'm the holy of holies. I am God in the flesh who has come to earth to offer the ultimate sacrifice on the ultimate altar. So that the holiness of God, the presence of God, is not confined to bricks and mortar. It's not confined to a place. Instead, the righteousness of God, the consecrating work of God, is available to everyone. Then when they finally crucified Jesus, remember what happens. It was so significant. Matthew 27, 50 and 51 says this, that from the cross... It says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and he yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And he makes sure his readers get this detail. From top to bottom, the the 60-foot-tall, four-inch-thick curtain was torn all the way from top to bottom, ripped in two from heaven to earth. The tearing of the curtain was God's idea God's initiative, the rip started at the top because now this dividing line just got erased by God. The presence of God isn't confined to a place or some walls or a building. No, the curtain has been torn in two and now God is on the loose. And after the resurrection, something even more radical happens. Jesus tells his followers that there'll be witnesses all over the earth when the spirit comes upon them. And then Pentecost takes place. And according to the old system, the Holy Spirit should have been confined to the temple. The Holy Spirit should have shown up only in the Holy of Holies because that's where the presence of God is. But instead, the Holy Spirit came to everyone in the upper room. He should have only come to the appointed priests, but he came to everyone. Listen to Acts 2, 2 through 4. says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now this is so interesting. Well, just imagine the scene, will you? There's a fire that comes into the room and it it divides, which means prior to dividing, it must have been like one big ball of fire. So so it starts with this violent wind. Imagine the sound of a train, like a tornado outside your door. And you hear this sound, and then a giant ball of fire comes into the room. And just when you decide you're all going to die, the fireball separates. And the text says very specifically that these little separated pieces of fire come to rest, listen, on each one of them. And he's clear. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Please get this because this was the inauguration of the new system. The Holy Spirit is coming upon the church and every true member of that church, every single believer of that church, everyone gets the fire. Each one gets the flame. The Holy Spirit didn't come in a ball of fire and sit on Peter's head, you know, the lead pastor, and everyone else has a little tiny flame. No, the Holy Spirit didn't come on just Peter and James and John, the staff of the first church, no. All the rest of them got the fire too. They weren't like laity. They experienced it personally. It rested on all of them. And imagine if it were to happen today. Imagine if it were to happen in this room right now, like a ball of fire representing the power of the Holy Spirit arrived in this room. He would split up and be distributed in the same measure over every single person in this place. There would be no difference in the flame over my head and the flame over your head. There would be no difference in the flame over Scott or Mike or Chrissy or Jordan or Sarah. No man would have a bigger flame than a woman. No rich person would have a bigger flame than a poor person. No white person would have a bigger flame than a black person. It's equal distribution of God's presence, demonstrating that it's a brand new day, that the church is going to be different. See, that we're all in possession of the full measure of the presence of God, which means we're all priests. We are all holy ones. We all carry with us the presence and the power of God. But here's where it gets crazy. Remember, there was that tabernacle, the the, the temple in the Old Testament where the presence of God physically dwelled. And then Jesus came, and it says he tabernacled among us. And he said, now I'm the temple, remember? And then the presence of God has arrived in Jesus and, and wherever he goes. Wherever wherever Jesus goes, God goes. But listen, what Paul says in the New Testament, he's talking to ordinary people like you and me. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, do you not know that you are God's temple, that God's spirit dwells in you? God's temple is holy and you are that temple. What? (laughs) What is that? He says later in 6.19, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. This is the new system. See, in the old system, God's spirit dwelled in a physical temple in Jerusalem. Then Jesus came, and Jesus was the temple. And now Jesus has returned to heaven, and guess what? Now you're the temple. The presence of God dwells in you just like he did in the Holy of Holies, which is why our lives have to be cleansed and redeemed by the blood of Christ. But what about the priests? Like the ones who carried out that holy work, who performed the acts of service on behalf of the people, who read and taught the law, who made sacrifices, who administered healing and forgiveness on God's behalf. What happened to them? Well, we arrive again back at today's text. Peter, the first pastor of the New Testament church in Jerusalem, and the one who had experienced all of these iterations First as a Jewish man with the temple and then a follower of Jesus who had become the temple and now as a participator in Pentecost who the Holy Spirit had come upon and now he's the leader of the church and he's saying to Christians, but now you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. What is he saying? He's saying you and I are the new priesthood. We're all priests, so, so, so grab your robe and let's do this. Okay, we are the temple, yes, the dwelling place of God, and we are the priests, the models of holiness and the distributors of God's grace and love. During the Reformation, Martin Luther called this doctrine the priesthood of all believers. We're priests. If you want to bring it into our context, let's call it the pastorhood of all believers, Yes, I have a title of pastor here, but when it comes to roles, we're all pastors of Grace Church. If you're a believer in Jesus and if you're devoted to this body and membership, you are a pastor of Grace Church. Today, many churches, including ours from time to time, drift back into the old system. They they think that the church is a building, that the church is run by a professional clergy class, but that's not the way of Christ. You have been wired for ministry, and your ministry cannot be outsourced to a paid professional. God wired you to do it. And the ministry of a local church was meant to be carried out by all believers. The church is not an entity that owns a building and hires a pastor, and then everyone just lives off of those two financial investments. No, you are the church. You are the priests of the new covenant. You are the pastors. You don't have to come to me in order to mediate your prayers or interpret your Bible. You can talk to God on your own anytime you like. The ministry flows through all of us. The New Testament church was never meant to operate like a lot of us operate. We say, well, the pastor, you know, that's, that's why we pay you, pastor. You read the Bible for us, you tell us what it means in your sermons, you do the prayers, you visit the sick, you provide spiritual counsel, you evangelize the lost, and we'll show up and do our part, which is, we'll put a little money in the plate, we'll watch you, we'll evaluate how you're doing at the ministry, if we don't like it, we'll send you some emails, right? And this system will always end in disappointment because this isn't God's plan. I heard a pastor recently on a podcast say, he said, you know, I tell my church all the time, you do what I can't do and I'll do what you can't do. And then he explained. He said, what I can't do is invite all your friends to church because I don't know all your friends. But what you can't do is to share the gospel with them in a compelling way. And I wanted to scream through my phone. That is not true. It is not the paid pastor's job to share the gospel with your friends because everyone's a pastor. And I just need to say I'm so proud that we're breaking this mold here at Grace. In fact, I wrote a whole book to tell our story. We have priests running around all over the place doing critical ministry. We have a a majority of people on our staff who are not paid, just priests acting like priests. You know, I sometimes get questions from new folks, like why why aren't the pastors always the ones serving communion? Or why do people who aren't pastors, you know, preach sometimes or baptize people sometimes or visit people in the hospital? It's because we're all priests. There are no holy people who need to consecrate everything. Wherever Jesus is, that's what's holy, and he's in every believer. We are the temple, and we are the priests. Or sometimes I hear, you know, why isn't our worship space more ornate, or fancier, or more churchy looking? It's because buildings aren't the temple. We are the temple. We have many hundreds of unpaid priests who do the work of ministry around here. I just wanna highlight a handful. You see many of them in the more public roles. I think, you know, Pastor Sarah, who preached last weekend, she has a a hand in just about every piece of biblical content that goes out from Grace Church, including my sermons. She's an unpaid volunteer priest. You, You probably haven't been around Grace for very long before being cared for by Pastor Jim, who leads our care ministries, also our commons congregation. Jim is an unpaid priest. But there are many others that aren't so public, that are more behind the scenes, like Matt, the tech lead at Harbor Creek, who runs the team and directs the services. He's there for worship practices and on Sundays and event practices and executing ministry. He also works third shift for the state police and his dedication as a priest is off the charts. And there's Larry and Janet, who lead our guest experience team at the Commons, making sure everyone is loved and cared for and counted. And not just on Sundays, but checking in throughout the week as well. Or Michelle, who leads our life group ministry at McCain, as well as co-leads a a booming group of young adults. She's a recruiter and a trainer and a quipper and an encourager of new leaders. What about Angus, the, the incredible and passionate leader in our Grace Kids ministry? He's filled with love and advocacy for each child. He's a great role model for them. Or Trudy, who, who brings her incredible expertise to our IT team internally. She's taking care of SharePoint sites and helping set up our internet portal so, so that our leaders can communicate seamlessly. Or Joe, who faithfully serves every week as part of our facility maintenance team. He makes sure things are working in, in, in all of our buildings. Or AJ and Heather, who've consistently and faithfully poured themselves out year after year into the lives of high school students in our youth ministry. They're changing the trajectory of these kids' lives. Or Brandon, who's heading up all our, of our property needs at our Serve Erie sites. He delivers tools for, for needed projects. He mows grass. He leads people who come in for community service. He's Mr. Reliability. Or Shanna, who, who's essentially pastoring the challenge group leaders of our new online congregation that will be launching soon. soon. She's engaging and connecting with people from all over the country. Or Amy is a skilled project manager. She's stepped up to lead an entire launch of our School of Ministry at the Grace Leadership Institute next year. I I mean, the depth and breadth and variety and skill and passion of this small list of people is just representative of the hundreds of priests who have stepped into their calling at Grace. They're not being paid, they're not professionals, but they've embraced their role as royal priests in God's kingdom. And there's such fulfillment and satisfaction and and almost kind of a divine momentum when the Spirit of God works through you like this. That less than 1% deal that makes you uniquely you comes into play big time. God has wired you to be used specifically for the advancement of his kingdom in a role that only you can fill. Now, in the Old Testament and under the prior system, the priests had special privileges and special responsibilities. They had a bunch of different duties. But the main one was to offer sacrifices before the Lord. And so if we're the new priests, then what are the sacrifices that we bring? Let me ask it this way. You've been ordained as a priest. What does that mean? So it's not animal sacrifice anymore for burnt offerings. But what do we bring? Ray Pritchard talks about these five priestly sacrifices in the New Testament. So you sacrifice your body. Romans 12, one says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This means your whole life is a priestly sacrifice to God, your feet, where you go, your hands, what you do, your eyes, what you watch, your mouth, what you say, your ears, what you listen to, your sexual organs, your whole life becomes a living sacrifice to God. But you also sacrifice your praise Hebrews 13, 15 says, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So, so we do this every day, but we also do this every weekend when we come together as a church to celebrate who God is and what he's done. We bring a sacrifice of praise to God. It confounds me when Christians stand with their arms crossed uh, across their chest in corporate worship and don't move their mouths. Do you always feel like praising God? no. That's why it's called a sacrifice, but we bring God the praise of our lips. The third priestly sacrifice is your acts of service. It's the next part of Hebrews 13, 16. It says, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So when we serve, when we use our gifts, when we're kind to others, when we share the stuff that we have, I just talked about that as as being demonstrated so beautifully by the people of grace that are serving in these ways. These are everyday sacrifices that God is pleased with. Fourth, you sacrifice in your generous giving. Philippians 4.18, Paul says, I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. What's he doing here? He's using Old Testament priestly language, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, to describe their generous financial gifts and offerings. Did you know that when you give sacrificially from your resources to the cause of Christ, you are performing a priestly function? Your financial offerings are a pleasing sacrifice to God. And lastly, you sacrifice your prayers. Revelation 8, 3 and 4 describes the throne room of God. And listen to this language he uses. He says, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Again, this is the language of Old Testament sacrifice. When you pray to God, it's like smoke rising from the altar in the Holy of Holies. Your prayers are like a sacrifice that's pleasing to God. And so if you think about just that list, it really means that all of your life is a sacrifice offered to God. And guys, here's what I challenge you to do. The next time you look in the mirror, I want you to remember that you're looking at a priest. You are a pastor. You have been ordained by God to perform the priestly functions of his kingdom. So we're all portable temples and we're all mobile priests. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to preach on Sunday. You don't have to wear a robe. You don't have to be in a church building. You are a priest wherever you go. Like I continually hear stories of the folks of Grace Church living out this calling. It's happened just a few times over the last few weeks. I I find out that some life event happened to someone or a death or a sickness or a difficult circumstance, and it happened to someone at Grace, and my heart sinks because I didn't know about it. And so I reach out to them to express my concern, and I'll get the same story. Oh, pastor, we've already felt the full force of the love and support of Grace Church. They'll say, my life group came around me, or my ministry leader took care of my meals, or one of the teams from the church embraced us with love and care, and I think every time, there it is. Every Christian is a royal priest, performing the duties and functions of a priest as we go about our everyday lives. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And listen, it's also a key part of how you have been wired. Maybe God wired you so that your priestly role would be aimed toward kids, or youth, or technical teams, or music, or pastoral duties, or online responsibilities, but you've been wired by God to serve him well. And so I would challenge you to track down that outlet for your priestly duties. And here's a very practical next step that I'll leave you with. Next week, we're having what we call a shadow Sunday. It's on May 29th, or maybe during the week following if the ministry doesn't happen on a Sunday. But it's an opportunity to get a taste of a ministry without a full commitment. So you can see the options and sign up over at whoisgrace.com forward slash next. And the form that you wanna choose is I'm ready to shadow. Listen, if you're watching on TV or online, there are options there for you to get involved as well, even if you're not with us in person. But can you just imagine the potential of the church if we all recognize our calling as royal priests? We'd be unstoppable. I love you guys.